invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. We're continuing on in our study of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote back in the first century. And we're going to be looking uh, in chapter 1 again today. We're in the middle of this very long opening sentence that Paul has written, verses chapter 1, verses 3, all the way down through verse 14. Just one long sentence in the original language. And we got through three verses of it last time we were looking at this. And we're going to be looking at the next three verses today, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. But in order to give us a little bit of context, since it's been a few weeks, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time and looking into his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this letter. A letter written so long ago to a place far away from here. In what we might think is our circumstances that seem so far removed from our own. I pray, Father, that the same Holy Spirit who guided Paul's hand in writing this letter would also be present here this morning, helping us, opening our hearts and minds, helping us to see your word clearly, impressing it on us, forming us and shaping us as a result of listening to it. We pray you would do this for your glory, but also, Father, for our good. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story uh, in the news this past week, true story, uh, about Ben and Jackie Belknap from Halliday, Utah. Uh, ben and Jackie had borrowed $1,060 from Ben's parents and they were eager to pay them back. So they had been saving up their money and they had been putting it in an envelope so that they could give that back to Ben's parents as quickly as they could. They saved up the money, and so it was time to then give it to Ben's parents. And so they went to go find the envelope where they had stored it and all of the money inside. And when they got there, they realized the envelope was gone. They began to frantically search the house from top to bottom, as you might imagine. And eventually, Jackie called out to Ben, I found the money, I think. 
Ben found Jackie, and there she was holding the container, the basket that normally sat underneath the shredder of their house. And she turned the basket over, $1,060 of confetti fell to the floor. Now, who would do such a thing like that? Well, their attention very quickly turned to their two-year-old toddler, Leo. Leo had been simply imitating what he saw his mother do every week as she took their junk mail and put it through the shredder. And so he took what he thought was junk mail and just put it into the shredder as well. That's, that's really bad news. Uh, you can imagine how discouraged they were. But as is often the case, there is some good news in the midst of there being bad news. Shortly after that, I don't know who told them or how they found out, but Ben and Jackie found out, and I did too this week as I was reading the story, that uh, within the U.S. Department of Treasury, there is a very special office called the Mutilated Currency Division. And Ben and Jackie were instructed as they were speaking to the officials in this particular division that if they would bag up their $1,060 of currency that had been shredded into Ziploc baggies and mail it to Washington, D.C. to their office, within one to two years they would receive money, the money that had been shredded back into their possessions. It's always good to get good news in the midst of bad news. Paul is writing this letter, the Ephesians letter, to Christians who were living in this city of Ephesus and the surrounding areas, and he was giving them in this letter good news in the midst of the bad news that they were experiencing in their lives. The bad news he alluded to here in the very first verse when he tells them and reminds them that he's writing to them as saints who are in Ephesus. They are in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was not a good place, a fun place, a welcoming place to live as a Christian in the first century. For them to be Christians in the first century in Ephesus was bad news. It was hard. It was a city that was not friendly to the Christian faith, even hostile. It was a very pluralistic culture, tolerant of much, except for the absolute claims of Christianity. And so Christians were often marginalized and even threatened living in that place. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians to encourage them, to give them some good news in the midst of the bad news of what it looked like to live as them in that culture, to give them good news, good news in the midst of their hardships and difficulties. We saw a few weeks ago as we began looking at what Paul tells them in verses three through six, he told them that God the Father has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has chosen them from before the foundation of the world and he has declared them to be holy and blameless in his sight. He has chosen them and adopted them as his own children through Jesus Christ and all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's how Paul begins this wonderful good news that he speaks to them. 
We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He begins really in this first three chapters to give them what is true, the indicatives of who they are in Christ and what God has done for them, what has been accomplished and completed on their behalf even before time began. And today, Paul continues on to give them and us this morning good news, not only about what the Father has done before the foundation of the world, but what the Son has accomplished. And what is it that he has accomplished? He says in the beginning of verse 7, in him we have redemption. So this morning, let's look and see what he says about this redemption, that it is redemption for us personally But it is also a redemption that has cosmic, creation-wide impact. So first of all, what does he tell us about the redemption that is for us? He says we have redemption. So the word redemption is something important for us to understand. It's actually a Greek word that Paul uses here that is rich in historical meaning. Literally, the word redemption means a payment... Of a ransom to reclaim something that has been taken away by someone else. Many times it's used in the context of slaves that have been set free by a payment that has been made on their behalf. And this word that Paul uses here in many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is associated with the story of the Exodus. That word redemption shows up even before the Exodus took place in Exodus chapter 6 when God promised that he would redeem his people out of Egypt, that he would ransom them, that he would rescue them, that he would pay for them to be released and given freedom out of Egypt. It shows up in 2 Samuel 7 and the Psalms and Isaiah over and over again. This idea of the exodus of God's people being redemption for God's people. And Paul is saying here by using this word that God's people have been ransomed. They have been redeemed, not just out of Egypt and the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt. But he is saying that if you are in Christ this morning, you have redemption You have been purchased. You have been delivered. You have been set free. And notice, he further describes it in verse 7. He goes on to say, it's not just the redemption that we have. It is also described as the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, depending on what translation you have sitting on your laps in front of you this morning, uh, you may see, instead of trespasses, you may see the word sins. And that's not a bad translation, but the word that Paul is using here is actually not the word that we normally translate as sin. It's it's a unique word that literally means trespasses. And what is a trespass? It's a deviating from the right path. It's going somewhere that you're not supposed to go. It's taking a wrong step off of the path that you are intended to be following and losing your footing. That's the the sense of the word that he uses here. It's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden and it's what we do every single day. It is that which causes us to be in conflict with our Creator as we break His word, as we step away from His right path, His truth, His word. And so have our relationship with Him broken. Paul says that if you're in Christ this morning, 
You have redemption. You have forgiveness of your trespasses, of your sins. They have been paid for. They have been set. You have been set free. Charles Colson tells the story of watching Albert Speer being interviewed on Good Morning America. Some of you are old enough to remember that interview, perhaps. It took place on July the 24th, 1981. Albert Speer, if that name is not familiar to you, was one of Hitler's advisors. He was an architect by trade. He was a technological genius and in many ways credited with keeping the Nazi regime running during World War II. Eventually, after the war, he was captured and he was taken to Nuremberg to stand trial. He was only one, the only one of 24 war criminals to actually admit his guilt, to confess that he indeed was guilty of the charges that were brought against him. And he was sentenced to around 20 years in prison. He got out in 1966 and he died in London in 1981. But in between the time of when he got out and when he died, he wrote several books that detailed the Nazi regime and all the things that were happening within it. And even talking about his culpability, his being guilty. And on this interview with Good Morning America in 1981, the interviewer referred to a quote from one of his books where Speer had said that his guilt could never be forgiven and shouldn't be. The interviewer asked him if he still felt that way all these years later. And Chuck Colson, who was describing this interview, said he will never forget the look of despair on Spears' face as he said these words. I served a sentence of 20 years and I could say that I'm now a free man that my conscience has been cleared by serving my whole time as punishment, but I can't get rid of it. My newest book is part of my atoning of trying to clear my conscience. The Good Morning America interviewer pressed the point and asked, do you really think that your conscience, that your guilt could never be completely and totally cleared and Spear responded, I don't think it will ever be possible. Colson, as he was reflecting on that interview, said, for 35 years, Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought expiation, all to no avail. I wanted to write Spear to tell him about Jesus and his death on the cross, about God's forgiveness. But there wasn't time. The ABC interview was the last his last public statement, and he died about five weeks later. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, Paul has good news. He has good news for you in the midst of the bad news of knowing about your sin. It is that you have been redeemed in Christ, that you have been bought and purchased with a price, and your sins have been forgiven completely, totally, and forever. 
And notice Paul tells us how it is achieved, how that redemption has been achieved. At the beginning of verse 7, he says that we have redemption through his blood. Now, who is his? If you go back and try to find the... Uh, the, the, the pronoun there that tells us who it is. He begins verse 7 by saying, in him. So that doesn't help us. But if you go back just to the end of verse 6, he tells us who he's referring to, the beloved with a capital B. And you can go back even a little bit further and see that he's speaking about Jesus Christ, the beloved. And it's in Christ that we have redemption and it is through Christ's blood that we have redemption. The payment that has been made to redeem us and to purchase us and to give us forgiveness of our sins is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on the cross. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, paid the debt that we owed by living a life of perfect love and obedience and then giving His life, shedding His blood that we might have redemption. How, how do you get it? What does Paul say about how we earn this redemption? What do we have to do to get it? What does he say here at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8? He says what you have to do to get it is nothing. Isn't that what he says at the end of verse 7? It is according to the riches of His grace which He lavished Upon us. The way that we get this redemption and forgiveness, the way that the blood of Jesus atones for our sins, purchases us, and redeems us, is through the grace of God. It is as He lavishes His grace, the riches of His grace, upon us. That word there, according to, that we have translated according to, means as a result of or because of. We get redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus because of, as a result of, according to the riches of God's grace which He has lavished upon us. Lavished. That word means a superabundance. An exceeding amount. A surplus. More than we could imagine or even that we even needed. He has lavished His grace on us. So what do we do with this wonderful good news about this personal redemption that is ours in Christ? A couple things. First of all, if you're here this morning in Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know with absolute certainty that the crushing weight of shame and guilt and despair has been lifted from you forever. Unlike Albert Speer, we are not to live under that despair and weight it's not that we won't ever feel it from time to time. Of course we will until Jesus returns. And even that which we feel from time to time is a grace from God if it causes us to be drawn near to Him. But we are not ever going to have to remain and stay under that crushing weight ever again. We have been redeemed. We have been bought. We have been freed. Our sins and trespasses have been forgiven. We have been bought with a costly price 
by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And do you understand that that is as true for you today as it was for the very first moment that you believed? That it's no less true for you today than it was on the day that Jesus Christ gave His life paying for your sins. That it's no less true for you today than it was from before the foundation of the world when your Father adopted you and brought you into His family. When we are tempted to doubt and to despair, we come to our Father and we confess our sin for the umpteenth time. That we are burdened because we sinned and did that thing once again. Why do you think you're any less worthy of God's forgiveness and pardon than when the very first time you confessed it? It's Jesus' blood. It is paid for it once and for all. You're no less forgiven today as when the very first time that you've asked for God's forgiveness. A second thing as we think about this personal redemption that is ours. This truth helps us as we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This truth should impact how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. How we respond to them when they do, when they do things and they say things that we don't like. Or that offend us. It reminds us that they too, as our brothers and sisters in Christ, have redemption and have forgiveness of their sins through Jesus' blood, just like we do. And that should fill us, as God's people, with an incredible amount of humility and careful kindness and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even ones that we disagree with about various things, even ones who offend us from time to time. Paul also talks about not not only a redemption that is for us personally, but he talks about a redemption of all things. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is it that Paul says that God makes known to us as God's people? At the beginning of verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will. And he says at the beginning of verse 10, that it's a plan For the fullness of time. That word mystery in the Bible has the sense of something that in the past was unknown or couldn't be seen or was secret, was hidden. But now has been revealed and made known. God's plan, His will, the mystery of His will was something that in the past was not completely known, was not completely understood, but now he's saying he has made it known to us as his people. And notice he also tells us what this plan, what this will is based on. He says at the end of verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to what? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That word purpose 
Some of your translations actually have a, a different word there instead of purpose. It says good pleasure. And that's really what that word means. Good pleasure or desire or what pleases. And so you see what Paul is saying here. That God has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, according to His desire, according to what is pleasing to Him. And He calls it not just His good pleasure, but He calls it a plan. And that too is an interesting word that Paul uses. It literally means stewardship or management of office or home. You see what he's saying here. God's will, which is once hidden, has now been made known to us, is based, is according to the sovereign management and stewardship of bringing about God's own good pleasure and desire and what is pleasing to him. So, in other words, what he's saying here is that history has a purpose. History has a meaning. The mystery of God's will is according to the stewardship of his own good purpose and plan and desire. So what is the plan? What is the plan that, that he says was a mystery in the past but now has been made known to us? Well, he gets at it in verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite something is to summarize them, to bring them all to a summary, to sum them up. And so what he's saying is God's good pleasure, his plan that he is managing, that he is stewarding, that has been a mystery in the past, but now that has been made known to us is that he is bringing all things in summary, to summary, in Jesus. Now what in the world does that mean? What does it mean when he says that all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ? I think he means that there is a cosmic, creation-wide aspect to the redemption that Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. He's not, this is not universalism. Paul is not saying that all beings, apart, even apart from faith in Christ, will be redeemed. But what he is saying is that Christ's redemption has cosmic effect. That every aspect, every nook and cranny of creation will be impacted by the redemption that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. In a sense, it is a reverse of the fall. When Adam and Eve fell Every aspect of our creation, every aspect of our being is now tainted with sin and brokenness. And what Paul is reminding us is that the redemption that Jesus Christ secured for us on the cross also secured the redemption of all things as they are united in Christ in the fullness of time. It reminds us of what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Paul even there and here is speaking about this sense of how the creation itself is eagerly waiting the full redemption that has been accomplished as it is united in Christ only coming in the fullness of time. It hasn't happened yet. It's not complete yet. But it started with the arrival and the death and the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, he says, in the fullness of time, it will be completed. It is interesting. I, I, I studying this this past week and I came across something that I wasn't aware of. And that is that in this same city that this letter was written to in the city of Ephesus, just a little while after this letter was written by Paul, uh, an enormous statue was created at the city gates of Ephesus, of the city of Ephesus. It was a statue of the Roman emperor Trajan. And it was extremely ornate. It was massive. And it was designed to cause the people to be moved to glory and to worship the Roman emperor. And this statue, as it originally stood, Trajan stood with all of his glory, with one of his feet raised and placed on a globe, showing his power, showing his majesty. But do you know today, if you went to Ephesus, you can go and stand in front of that statue, but there's only a fragment of one foot left. It's a reminder to us. Trajan's reign came to an end. Even as great as he thought he was, as great as the Roman emperor, Empire thought that it was, it eventually came to an end. And the power and the majesty and the glory that they desired was never fully and completely realized. But the Bible tells us that a day is coming in the fullness of time when Jesus will have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord over all. In just a few minutes, we're going to finish our service by singing, perhaps, an unusual hymn in October, Joy to the World. The third verse of Joy to the World says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's this sense that Paul is teaching us that enables us to sing that verse with gusto. That even though that is not our experience today, it is what is coming. And so that helps us to understand what significance this truth has for us in this life. This idea of this cosmic impact of redemption of all things being united in Christ. How does that change how I live today? It gives us hope in the midst of the brokenness and the frustrations of life that we live with now under the fall. We know what God is doing, even if it hasn't been completed yet, even if we can't see all of the details of it today, we know because Paul said it, that in the fullness of time, all things will be united and summed up by the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that means that as God's people living now in the midst of the difficult and hard things, we do not lose hope. When we cannot see and we cannot understand what is happening in our lives or in our lives of those that we love or our country or around the world, 
We don't lose hope because our hope is in the gospel that has provided our redemption and is about the business of redeeming all things in the fullness of time. And that means that we can actually look for glimpses of it now. How often do we go about life simply being discouraged by what's happening around us rather than being expectant and proactively looking for the glimpses of how the redemption of all things is coming? I think it also means that we have meaning and purpose in what we're doing from Monday through Saturday. Many of you know the name J. Gresham Machen. He's kind of a big deal in our circles, our theological circles. Pastor, theologian in the 20th century, was a professor at Princeton Seminary. He founded Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and helped to start our sister denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in the 1930s. But many don't know that when he was in college as a Christian, he greatly struggled to see how his Christian faith related to everyday life. His work, his vocation, what he was doing Monday through Saturday. But Machen talks about the fact that eventually as he meditated on this idea that the redemption that we experience personally through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our sins means that one day all things will be united to Jesus Christ means that there is meaning in everything that he did Monday through Saturday. In one of his sermons in Princeton Seminary, he said that every human endeavor must be brought to some relationship with the gospel. What God calls us to do in our vocations and in our work has meaning and purpose. God is in the process of uniting all things together in Christ, even what we are doing in our vocations. Not just the ministry through His church, but the vocation that God has given to us to be faithful in throughout the week. So if you're a farmer, or you're involved in law enforcement, or you're a teacher, or you're a project manager, or you're involved in some way with medicine, or you're doing research, or you're a student, or you're a stay-at-home parent, or you work in the IT world, or you're in vocational ministry. Whatever it is, the Bible says, do it as unto the Lord, because that's who you are doing it for. And to be encouraged that God is actually taking the work that He's giving you to do, and enabling you to do, And He's using it in some way that you may or may not get to see for His glory and the building up of His church and His kingdom. It's not just giving meaning and purpose to our vocations, but this understanding of what Paul says here also gives meaning and purpose to our relationships with other believers in Christ. The day is coming when there will be no more disagreements, no more differences with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be united to them completely and fully in Christ. And so we ought to live today with that reality in mind. It should impact how we Talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ. It should impact how we view them. It should also inspire us and motivate us and cause us to be 
expectant and joyful and open to the idea of actually working together in various ways to see the work of Jesus' church and kingdom expand here and now. And one last application. I think this idea of what Paul is saying here gives meaning and purpose not only to our vocations and our relationships with other believers in Christ, but it also gives meaning and purpose to our conversations with unbelievers. Do you see what Paul says here? If you're in Christ this morning, living here in 2018, you have had made known to you by God the mystery of God's will. That's what Paul says. It has been made known to us as his people. Do you understand the privilege and the blessing and the responsibility that God now has made known his will, the mystery of his will to you and to me? And so we should be motivated to tell others about it and to help others to understand it. Are you praying for some of the ministries of this church where we're trying to do that, whether it's through ESL or our work at Crow Creek, uh, helping in various ways and praying for the ministry of new life and family promise and together for good. Are you thinking about the ways that you could participate in the family fun nights each month? Are you looking at your neighbors and your co-workers and your fellow students as those who need to know the gospel, the need to know this wonderful message that Paul says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses, and that in the fullness of time God himself is going to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, this incredible book that you have so graciously and sovereignly provided in your word for us. And as we dig into it, even as we're digging into this first very long sentence, help us to not get lost in the details. But I pray, Father, that we would stand back and we would be in awe of your grace and glory the riches of your grace that Paul sings about in these verses over and over again to the praise of your glory alone. And as we do that, Father, encourage us with the truths of the details that indeed in Christ we have redemption. I pray that as we meditate on what that means for us personally and individually and what that means in terms of your creation and the fullness of time when Christ will return again, Move us and inspire us to go out today and to live as your people. We pray you would do this because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul wrote a different letter to a different church, the church in Corinth, one of the things that he did in the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, was given some instructions about the Lord's Supper. Paul said, I received from the Lord, for what I received from the Lord I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul speaks here in these verses, these instructions to the church in Corinth and through the Holy Spirit to us this morning. Uh, He talks about the fact that we ought to guard against coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Now, what does that mean? Uh, That sounds pretty ominous. It sounds a little bit scary. One of the nice things about being a confessional church, of having a confession of faith, is that the Westminster Confession of Faith actually helps us understand various parts of what the Bible teaches. In the chapters on the Lord's Supper, it talks about this idea of coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner means to come as someone who doesn't understand the gospel, who doesn't believe the gospel, someone who is an unbeliever. That's not meant to be mean, and it certainly doesn't remove the dignity that every single human being has who's made in the image of God. But it's a recognition that the Lord's Supper is more than just something perfunctory that we're doing. It's not just a memorial or remembrance. It is that, but it is more than that. We believe it's a means of grace, that as we come believing, trusting, in faith, That the Holy Spirit is at work in these very moments in what we're doing, strengthening us. But not apart from faith. So to eat and to drink from the Lord's Supper without faith is not right. It's something that Paul says is even dangerous to do. So the way that our denomination has chosen to apply that principle is to invite anyone who's made a public profession of their faith and connected themselves to a Bible-believing church to come and to eat and to drink, to be reminded and to be nourished in our souls as the Holy Spirit helps us and strengthens us. But if that's not you this morning, then we would invite you to let the elements pass. One last word of encouragement If you're here this morning as a believer and you've made a public profession of your faith in Christ and connected yourself with uh, His body, but you're struggling and you look at your faith and you say, I have a weak faith. Notice Paul does not say that you have to have a strong faith in order to come. It's a genuine faith. And even if it's struggling, even if you have moments of doubt and despair... This table is for you if you're in Christ and you've made that public profession of faith. Come with a genuine faith, even if it's shaky, even if it's needing strength. For that's what God will do as He reminds us of this great redemption that is ours and strengthens us so that we might go out and live for Him. So let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table and ask Him to bless it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you with thanksgiving and joy. We come with thanksgiving and joy because you give us this means of grace that even as we learn about it from your word, that you would use it, Father. Point us once again to our Savior. Point us once again to the redemption that has been secured and finished and completed through Jesus Christ's life and work and death and resurrection. We pray, Father, that you would not only remind us, but we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work as we come in faith, believing and trusting in you. We pray that through faith you would strengthen us and help us, Father, to go out believing these wonderful truths from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.